Congregation, turn with me for a moment to 2 Corinthians 13, verse 5. 2 Corinthians 13, verse 5. There we read these profound words, Examine yourselves whether you be in the faith. Prove your own selves, know ye not your own selves, how that Jesus Christ is in you, except ye be reprobates. And so the thrust of this verse is, in the conclusion of Paul's second letter, that it is possible for people to deceive themselves, to assume that they are believers when in reality they are not. And that's a somewhat unsettling reality. And yet we know that the Word of God addresses that in multiple ways. Think of how often the Lord Jesus called to self-examination. When we finally, ultimately, would end in chapter 7, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, then we will realize that in multiple ways Jesus calls to self-examination. When He calls about he preaches about the narrow way and the broad way. When he preaches about fruitful, tea, fruitful trees and fruitless trees. When he talks about those who say, Lord, Lord, but are not doers of his Father's will. When he talks about wise and foolish builders. That's why it says here, examine yourselves whether you be in the faith. It doesn't merely say whether you claim to have faith, but whether you are in the faith. Very strong emphasis. In other words, whether your faith is the real article, whether your faith is genuine, whether your faith measures up to the standards of God's Word. Prove your own selves. And then he says this, Know ye not of your own selves how that Jesus Christ is in you, except you be reprobates. Again, he gives us a, a unique insight here into what true faith looks like. He's saying a true believer is not only someone who outwardly confesses the name of Christ, but a true believer is someone in whom Christ dwells, in whom Christ lives. And when Christ dwells in us by His Spirit, when Christ lives in us, when we are united to Christ, that cannot but manifest itself also in the fruits of our lives. And of course, then the question arises... How then do I examine myself? By what standards am I to examine myself? Because congregation, this exhortation is an exhortation we must take seriously. Because the day is coming for me too, and for you, that we will be judged, not by human standards, but we will be judged by God's standards. There's a day coming for you and for me that we will appear before God. And when that happens, it, oh, what, all that matters is not what I thought of you as your pastor or what your elders thought of you or what family members may have thought of you. But as, in that day and at that moment, there's only one judgment that matters. And that is what God thinks of us. And let me assure you, we as office bearers, as ministers, as, off, as elders and deacons, we can be so mistaken in our judgment of men. But I can assure you that in that day, there will be no mistakes. In that day, God will know with absolute infallible perfection those that are truly His that's why the Beatitudes are so significant. Because in the Beatitudes, that remarkable opening statement of that amazing sermon that Christ preached at the beginning of his ministry, in the Beatitudes, Christ has provided for us the perfect paradigm 
by which we can examine ourselves whether we are in the faith. And what's so striking, as I already said last week, what is so striking about the Beatitudes? These are the words of the living Word Himself. Here is the Christ who is very God, who gives us with utmost clarity and with utmost precision what the marks are of those who truly belong to His kingdom. That's why it is so remarkable, boys and girls, I hope you remember, that essentially it's a package of seven marks. Seven is the number of perfection. And then, of course, the the Beatitudes that follow that, that talk about persecution, describe what will happen to the citizens of God's kingdom, how the world will react to those who are in the faith, who truly are united to Christ. They will be persecuted for righteousness' sake. And we saw last week when we gave you the global picture, when we looked at all of those Beatitudes, we saw how they consist of a description of the inner disposition of the believer, resulting in the exercise of faith that Christ remarkably describes as a hungering and thirsting after righteousness, and that those who do hunger and thirst after righteousness are filled to overflowing, and how that inward disposition then manifests itself in the outward disposition of the Christian, which is expressed as being merciful, being pure in heart. In other words, the holiness of the Christian starts within and manifests itself outwardly and being peacemakers. And I want to emphasize again, congregation, that this is a complete picture. In other words, when the Holy Spirit regenerates a man, when he makes us a new creature in Christ, when the Holy Spirit grafts us into Christ, all of these marks will be there. Now, that, as I said last week, that doesn't mean, and I will repeat this again for your benefit, that all of these marks will manifest themselves as strongly or as consistently uh, in every believer. There will be some differences, but the essence of the matter will always be there. And so when in Acts 16 we have an account of the conversion of Lydia and of the jailer, we have two conversion stories that are dramatically different. Lydia's conversion was so simple and God opened her heart and she attended unto the words that were spoken by the Apostle Paul. And then we see the fruits of that conversion. The jailer, very dramatic circumstances, about to take his life. An earthquake happened. And the fruits are the same. And so even though the circumstances of their conversion were dramatically different, and that teaches us that we should never measure our conversion by someone else's conversion. But the fruits of those conversions were identical. That's remarkable when you read that chapter. And so whether you are a Lydia or whether you are a jailer, whether you are a Timothy or whether you are a Paul, whether you are a David or whether you are a Manasseh, the fruits of God's work will always be the same. And these seven marks will always manifest themselves in the life of God's children. And that's why the Beatitudes are the perfect standard by which we can examine ourselves whether we are in the faith. Because what's crystal clear is that the exercise of faith, that hungering and thirst after righteousness, doesn't just come out of nowhere. It's the hungering and thirsting of a soul who's poor in spirit, who mourns, who is meek. And that exercise of faith that results in being filled, overflowing with God's love in Christ, 
will never be without fruit. It will manifest itself in our life. In my experience, I have encountered two extremes. I have encountered a I have encountered Christless conviction. What I mean by that, people who talk about their misery, about their sin, and nothing else. It doesn't bring them anywhere. And somehow they they are resting in, in the fact that they have convictions. But you see convictions that don't lead us to Christ are not the work of the Holy Spirit. But I've also seen the other extreme, a convictionless Christianity. People who claim to be believers, who claim to belong to Christ, and yet when you speak to them, you wonder why they believed in Christ. I've had multiple occasions in my ministry when I would ask people a very simple question. and I would say, why, why is Christ precious to you? Very simple question, and all I'm looking for is a very simple answer. I would ask you the same question this morning. If you claim to be a believer, if you claim to have believed in Christ, tell me why. What was it that drew you to Him? What was it that made Him precious? And I've heard encouraging answers. And I've heard very discouraging answers. Too often, I have to say sadly, the answers were very vague. Because you see, I'm, I'm not looking for, I'm, honestly, if you get to know me too, I'm not looking for an, an elaborate conversion story. I'm not looking for, but I do believe, congregation, I do believe that every true believer knows why they have taken refuge to Christ. They know why they need such a Savior. They know why Christ is precious. And that's why this paradigm of the Beatitudes is so very helpful. And so with God's help, we're going to look at the first of the seven marks of the true Christian, namely those that are poor in spirit, Verse 3 of Matthew 5. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So we'll look at three things. First of all, we will look at the poverty of the poor in spirit. What kind of poverty is Jesus talking about here in this opening beatitude? Secondly, the blessedness the happiness, the supreme happiness of the poor in spirit. And it's important for us to focus on that because it seems like a complete paradox. How can someone be proclaimed supremely happy who is poor in spirit? And thirdly, the citizenship of the poor in spirit. Because amazingly, Christ says, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So the poverty of the poor in spirit, the blessedness of the poor in spirit, and the citizens of the poor in spirit. So it's important for us to realize what Christ does not say. Christ does not say, blessed are the poor. There are far too many, until this day, who use this to promote a social gospel, as if poverty, physical Poverty is somehow a qualifying mark of the citizens of God's kingdom. Christ is not talking about monetary poverty, physical poverty. No, it's very specific. Blessed are the poor in spirit. It also does not say, blessed are the spiritually poor. That's also important, congregation. Because ultimately, that applies to all of us. All of us are spiritually poor. All of us come into this world completely spiritually bankrupt. But sadly, by nature, we are oblivious to that reality. 
We, are, we do not realize our true spiritual state. So let me talk about that briefly for a moment. What does it mean to be spiritually poor? For that applies to all of us. But in order to understand that congregation, we need to focus again, as we often do, on our condition in paradise. How was it that God created us? As you know, boys and girls, God created us out of the dust of the earth, and he created us in Adam in his image, and he created us to be the temple of his Holy Spirit. Or to put it very simply, boys and girls, God made Adam as someone who looked like him, but also as someone in whom God dwelt by his Spirit. And so when God finished that amazing work of fearfully and wonderfully forming the body of Adam, we read that he blew his breath into the nostrils of him, and Adam became a living soul. And so what made Adam so unspeakably blessed, what made him so rich, is that ultimately God himself dwelt in him. That's why later, we, it's not by accident that when the tabernacle is finished and when the temple is finished, that God dramatically demonstrates that he takes residence in those sanctuaries. Because that is symbolic of what happened here. Because as, as God was building the body of Adam, he was building a temple for himself. He was building a sanctuary for himself. And once he was finished with it, he entered, he breathed his breath, his spirit into Adam. And so what made Adam so rich is that God himself was Adam's portion. And when Adam sinned, when we fell in him, we lost that. Not only did we lose all the privileges of paradise, not only did we lose eternal life. No, the worst thing about our fallen Adam is congregation. We lost God. God was Adam's portion. That's what made Adam so unspeakably rich. And that's what defines our bankruptcy. Our bankruptcy. That we are born void of the God who created us. And as a result of our fall, and Jesus uses that language. Instead of temples of the Holy Ghost, we have become the synagogues of Satan. And when Christ uses the word poor here, he wants to emphasize how radical that poverty is. As I mentioned last week, there are two words that can be translated as poor from the Greek. One describes general poverty. But the other one describes radical poverty. Someone who is absolutely penniless. Someone who is absolutely destitute. And so in our fallen Adam, we didn't lose something. Congregation, we lost everything. We lost God as our portion. And now Jesus says, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Not just the spiritually poor, we all are. But blessed are they who recognize it. Blessed are they who have become aware of their true spiritual state before God. Blessed are they whose eyes have been opened to their spiritual poverty. Blessed are they who recognize that they are without God and without hope in the world. And you say, how can you call someone like that blessed? And we will come to that in just a moment. But what is significant for us, congregation, Christ is saying this is the foundational requirement for the citizens of my kingdom. This is a non-negotiable credential of the citizens of my kingdom. Those that belong to my kingdom are they who are aware of their spiritual 
poverty, who are experientially aware of their spiritual poverty. That's not something that we just coldly conclude. We coldly conclude that we are sinners. Some people talk very easily about the fact that they are lost sinners, but you know that it's not experiential because we will see next week. That's why Christ immediately connects mourning to it. In other words, that awareness, when that becomes real, when the Spirit takes the scales from our eyes, and when the Spirit shows us who we are in the sight of God, when we begin to see ourselves the way God sees us, that is not something that will leave us cold. What an unsettling experience that is for the first time and by renewal. And so why is it that Christ makes this the foundational mark of all marks of grace. Why is this the entrance requirement, if you will? Very simply, without that experiential awareness, without becoming experientially aware of who I am in the sight of God, the awareness that as a sinner, I am utterly destitute before God, unless that becomes experientially real to us. We will never see our need of Christ. We will never hunger and thirst after His righteousness. We will never desire the unsearchable riches of Christ. Or to put it very simply, there will be no room for Christ in our lives. Christ does not naturally fit in the heart of a sinner. The Spirit, however, when He takes hold of a man or a woman or a boy or a girl, His work is to make room for Christ, to so minister in our souls that this Jesus becomes exactly the Savior we need. That this Jesus becomes the exact fit for my needy and for my destitute soul. That's why it's such a blessing. Such a blessing when that becomes real. Because you see, then we begin to desire this Christ. We all need Christ. All men need Christ, without a doubt. But blessed are they who understand why they need such a Savior. That's why it's the Spirit's work again and again to make us say amen to that reality. Because let me again remind you that all of the Beatitudes are in the present tense. So Christ is describing something for us that is always true. That means God's children, true believers, those who have found salvation in Christ, never get beyond this beatitude. This remains true for a child of God their entire lifetime. Their entire lifetime, a true believer will increasingly realize how spiritually poor he is and remains. And though that is painful and is so unsettling, it is so profitable because the more we realize it, the more precious Christ becomes and the more we will look to him alone, the more we will find our rest in him alone. And it is unsettling for a believer too when things happen, when God so orchestrates our circumstances that we are again confronted with how bankrupt we are, when again we realize how poor we are and remain in ourselves. That's why the Apostle Paul in Romans 7 uttered that holy groan. Oh, that amazing second half of Romans 7, without which all the poor in spirit would have utterly despaired if that had not been recorded. In that second half of Romans 7, 
where Paul describes that intense spiritual struggle between the spirit and the flesh, the new man and the old man. A struggle that brought him to holy despair and finally made him cry out, Oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this body of death? There is the confession of an experienced, established believer like the Apostle Paul who was painfully aware of his remaining spiritual poverty, who in holy despair cried out, who shall ever deliver me from this body of death? How shall I ever be delivered from the reality that when I would do good, evil is present with me? How will I ever be delivered from that reality? But then comes the answer, you see. That's significant. Because right after that, He says, I thank God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Oh, there is joy in that confession. Joy by a man who was poor in spirit and who rejoiced in his rich Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's why it's important to realize that this experiential awareness of our spiritual poverty never stands alone. We may never divorce it from all the other Beatitudes. Again, this is a, this is a package. A package is all or nothing. When the Spirit of God works, these marks, all seven of them, will be there. And so, this poverty of spirit is intimately connected to The next beatitude, they build on each other, mourning, meekness, and ultimately this hungering and thirsting after righteousness. Because that's where the Holy Spirit will bring us. The Holy Spirit will never make us rest in our poverty. The Holy Spirit will never so work in us that our poverty, the confession of our misery, becomes a feather in our cap. The Holy Spirit has but one goal. And that is to bring you to Christ. That is to make room for Christ. His desire is for the first time, but over and over again, is to lead us to Christ. And so we could say that every exercise of faith, every exercise of faith is an experiential experience in which I painfully realize who I am and remain in myself, and yet in which I joyfully look to Christ, as Paul did. I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's why the words of Psalm 9 verse 18 are so beautiful. For the needy shall not always be forgotten. The expectation of the poor shall not perish forever. Because when the Spirit of God teaches me how poor I am, when He sheds light on my true spiritual state, on my spiritual bankruptcy, His goal is to make me experience the blessedness that is to be found in Christ. That's why Jesus said, Blessed, supremely happy are they who recognize their spiritual bankruptcy. Supremely blessed are they because that awareness will bring us, that awareness will bring us to the Savior and His unsearchable riches. That's what I meant earlier when I said, when I asked the question, tell me, what does Jesus mean to you? Tell me, why is Jesus precious to you? Those that are poor in spirit will be able to answer that question. They will be able to explain. It's because I saw in him everything that I needed for my poor, needy, and undone soul. So this was a real paradox for the people of Israel who heard him preach. This this contradicted all these beatitudes, this, this 
sevenfold declaration of true happiness completely contradicted to what they had been hearing from the Pharisees. The Pharisees defined happiness in terms of living up to their standards. The Pharisees, as we will see in chapter 6, erroneously taught the people that even physical wealth, physical prosperity was an evidence of God's favor. And Christ dismantles all of that. He's saying, we will never be happy, we will never be truly happy until these realities are your personal experience. Congregation, as you well know, the happiness of this world is an utter delusion. This world beckons to us. This world beckons to our our young people. This world says, if you live according to our agenda, you will find happiness. And so countless men and women are in a desperate pursuit after happiness. Even our Constitution says that we have a constitutional right to pursue our happiness. Christ is saying, you will never be happy truly happy. You will never be truly blessed until you are poor in spirit, until all of these marks that he outlines for us become an experiential reality in our lives. We can even be very, very religious and not be aware of our poverty. Think of the people in Laodicea. What did Jesus say about the people in Laodicea? He said about them, you are saying, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. I've got all my ducks in a row. And knowest not that thou art wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. They were oblivious to who they really were with all of their religion. They had all their religious ducks in a row. But they were blind to who they really were. That's what happens. The Spirit of God opens our eyes. Then we begin to realize that I am wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. But for one reason only. Because the Spirit wants you to look away from yourself. Realize how bankrupt you are in order that you would find your rest alone in Christ. Alone in His unsearchable riches. So what the, what the Spirit, what, what Christ is saying here is when, that, when, it, when it dawns on a person who they really are in God's sight, when we begin to see ourselves the way God sees us, uh, that means that you have become a living soul. Now again, I hasten to add, it doesn't end there. In other words, I would never say to you, if you're poor in spirit, you're saved. No, I would never say that, and I would not dare to say that in light of this context. What I've been saying already this morning, no, this poverty of spirit, as essential as it is, it's the foundational mark of all spiritual life. If it doesn't bring us to Christ, it is not the work of the Spirit, because that's his goal. That's why, and that's why Jesus is saying, supremely happy, That's what the word in Greek means. Supremely happy are those who become supremely unhappy with themselves. And so, let me kind of summarize what I've already said. Is that so the Spirit makes room for Christ unto justification and unto sanctification. So let me unpack that for you. First of all, unto justification. So what is justification? Justification is when the judge of all the earth declares you fully acquitted. When the judge of all the earth declares you absolved from all guilt. That's exactly what you and I need. In order to be reconciled with God We need to have our sins pardoned. We need to be justified in the sight of God. 
and the natural man, even the religious man, somehow believes vainly that we can somehow earn that acquittal. That somehow by our own works, by our own contribution, by our own religious experience, whatever it may be, that somehow we can win the favor of God. And that's why the Holy Spirit confronts us with our spiritual bankruptcy to show us that we have absolutely nothing with which we can satisfy God, that we are bankrupt, we are utterly destitute in the sight of God, so that we will flee to Christ alone, so that we will trust in Christ alone, so that we will come to Him as poor, needy, bankrupt sinners to experience the wonder, the wonder of salvation. The wonder of salvation that when I, a bankrupt sinner, when I put my trust in that Christ set before me in the gospel, that that simply act of faith secures for me the justification, the full justification of my guilty soul. And that's where the Holy Spirit wants to bring us. The Holy Spirit wants to bring us to the full enjoyment of what Christ has accomplished for sinners. The Holy Spirit wants to bring His people to the place where they experience the wonder of this divine pardon. And you see, when we see ourselves the way God sees us, oh, then we cannot but marvel We cannot but marvel at what God has provided in His Son. Oh, then we cannot but stand amazed that God has provided such a Savior. And that when I put my trust in that Christ, when I put my trust in that Savior, that the God against whom I have sinned, the God before whom I cannot stand, the God who has confronted me with my spiritual bankruptcy, that that God will pardon me, the sinner. And so the Holy Spirit makes room for the wonder of justification. And that's why Matthew Henry says it so beautifully, the poverty of spirit is a gracious disposition of soul by which we are emptied of self in order to being filled with Jesus Christ. Oh, a gracious disposition. And let me say that again. That these seven marks are never descriptions of people's natural personality traits. All of these are not to be found naturally in man. All the marks that Christ mentions here are spiritual marks. They are all the work of God's Spirit in the soul. Hannah understood it also, did she not, when she, in her her well-known song in 1 Samuel 2, listen how beautifully that matches the Beatitudes. The Lord maketh poor and maketh rich. He bringeth low and lifteth up. And those two always belong together, you see. And so when I said earlier, I've met people that could not really explain to me what Christ and had some very vague and very bizarre reasons as to why they came to Jesus. I mean, there was nothing in it about being aware of their sinnership and needing such a Christ. No, these two belong together. Poor in yourself, rich in Christ. Low in yourself, lift up in Christ. Psalm 68, verse 10. Thou, O God, hast prepared of thy goodness for the poor. That's why we read in Psalm 132, verse 15. I will abundantly bless her provision. And listen carefully to these words. I will satisfy her poor with bread. That's what the Holy Spirit does. He empties in order to fill us. He confronts us with who we are in order to lead us to Christ as the perfect solution for my soul. But as I said earlier, this is an ongoing experience throughout 
the life of the believer. God's children never get beyond being poor in spirit in themselves. As a matter of fact, one of the marks of spiritual growth is that we become ever more aware of how extensive that spiritual poverty is. But then over against it is that we become ever more aware of how precious and how suitable the Lord Jesus Christ is. I love the statement by Thomas Watson, the Puritan, who has a wonderful commentary on the Beatitudes. You know how he describes the poor in spirit? He says the poor in spirit are Christ admirers. That's it. That's very important. The poor in spirit are Christ admirers. That's it. They admire Christ because he is the exact answer to their poverty. He is the exact answer to their great spiritual need. And that's why also in the life of sanctification, the Spirit of God will continue to confront us with that poverty so that we not only come to Christ, but that we learn to abide in Christ. What, a, what an important part of spiritual life that is as well. And what compels the believer to abide in Christ? This growing awareness that apart from Him I can do nothing. Apart from Him I cannot bear fruit. And that's why Jesus said, don't even entertain the possibility. You cannot bear fruit apart from Me and therefore abide in Me. And so the Holy Spirit's goal is that God's children more and more live out of Christ, more and more lean upon Him, more and more abide in Him and His finished work. And that's why as long as we're here, the Holy Spirit will continue to shed light on our poverty so that Christ will proportionally become more and more precious to my soul. Oh, blessed, therefore are the poor in spirit. It's amazing that Christ begins his sermon by declaring such people blessed. Blessed is the sinner who knows his bankruptcy. We deserve the opposite. We deserve God's curse. That's why Jesus had to go to the cross and to be made accursed in our place so that we who deserve to be cursed, that we could be blessed in and through him. And then he says, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So this is significant that Christ makes such a, a, a dramatic statement, if you will. He is saying, when this is real, when this is experientially real, that indicates that you belong now to the citizens of God's kingdom. What is God's kingdom? I, can, I cannot unpack that now, of course, but God's kingdom is that realm in which the lordship of Christ is fully acknowledged and surrendered to. So the kingdom of heaven is made up of citizens who surrender fully to the will of the king of that kingdom, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. By nature, we are rebels. By nature, we live in rebellion towards God and his will. But when someone becomes poor in spirit, that means that rebel has been conquered by the grace of God. Think of what happened to Saul of Tarsus in one moment. As he left Jerusalem racing on his horse. Here was a rebel on a mission. And then Christ gets a hold of him. Christ strikes him down. And this proud Pharisee, who was so proud of himself, in one moment, he becomes poor in spirit. In one moment, Christ conquers the heart of that rebel. And the first thing out of his mouth, he says, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? There in Damascus, those three days when he ate, neither ate nor drank, Paul was confronted 
with his spiritual poverty. But not only that, he came out of that with an understanding of the Christ whom he had persecuted. So that straightway he preached Christ. Ah, you see, the Spirit had not left him there. But he uncovered his poverty in order to lead him to Christ. Oh, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Oh, Jesus is saying, those who experientially understand their spiritual bankruptcy, they have been translated from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his marvelous light. But let me emphasize again, the, the awareness of your poverty, however, is not the foundation of your salvation. It's not something you may rest in. No, we must rest in Christ. But what Christ is saying, it is evidence of the dramatic work of the Spirit in the heart of a man and a woman, a boy or a girl, who by nature are hostile to God and hostile to His Word. Oh, what a privilege to be designated a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In other words, they will never perish. Oh, then we see the, the wonder of what Paul says, that Christ, though he was rich, he became poor for our sakes, so that we who are poor and who are destitute that we might become rich in Christ. Or we could put it this way, in the fullness of time, the king became a beggar so that beggars could become kings. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is a citizenship that cannot be forfeited. This is an everlasting citizenship. Turn with me to 1 Samuel 2, verse 8, the song of Hannah, as we wrap this up. 1 Samuel 2, verse 8, where we see a beautiful statement by Hannah that matches what Jesus is saying. And then we see that all the Beatitudes are rooted in Old Testament Scripture. And ultimately, the entire Sermon on the Mount is Christ's exposition of the Old Testament Scriptures, the correct exposition. Look at what Hannah says, inspired by the Holy Spirit, and think of this, this beatitude. He raises up the poor out of the dust and lifteth up the beggar from the dunghill to set them among princes and to make them inherit the throne of glory. There you have it. That's this beatitude. That's Matthew 5, verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of of heaven. And so, congregation, can you identify with this? Do you see yourself in this portrait? Do you belong to the poor in spirit? Those who are always dissatisfied with themselves, but who are entirely satisfied with the Christ of the gospel, for whom this Christ has become so precious, so attractive, so altogether lovely, because those, those two belong inseparably together. When the Spirit of God works, He works both. But there will never be the one without the other. Again, Watson has another pithy statement, and he's, he's so well known for that, when he describes the difference between a hypocrite and a child of God. Watson says this, this is the difference between a hypocrite and a child of God. Listen carefully. The hypocrite is ever telling what he has. A child of God complains of what he lacks. Let me say it again. The hypocrite is ever telling what he has. A child of God complains of what he lacks. Again, let me hasten to add, never to revel in that lacking, never to find your salvation in your poverty. That's not what I'm saying. But it's that awareness, that abiding awareness, that lifelong awareness 
that drives us out to Christ over and over again. And that's why, if you, not, if you cannot in any way relate to that, what that means to be confronted with your spiritual bankruptcy, and you are not a citizen of God's kingdom. You may claim to be, but then you don't fit in this picture. Let me emphasize, and I will do it week after week, we must be able to recognize ourselves in this portrait in some measure to be able to say that we belong to the citizens of God's kingdom. What an encouragement there is for the poor in spirit. Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 25, verse 34. Again, in light of this beatitude, come ye, blessed of my Father, that's what he does here, pronounces them blessed. Come ye, blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. You see, that matches exactly what he is saying here. And oh, this Savior, this Christ, is preached to you today. And if you've never yet realized who you really are in the sight of God... This Savior beckons you to come to Him, to come and cast yourself at His feet. Because that's where you ultimately learn how destitute you are. That's where you learn who you are. And that's where you discover the wonder that for such, for such saviors, there is a rich Savior. Blessed are the poor in spirit, but they will hunger and thirst after righteousness. And they will be filled to overflowing. Amen. Let's pray. Gracious God, wilt thou bless thy word. Also this word, the words of the Savior, who has given us a most remarkable paradigm of true spiritual life by which we can examine ourselves, whether we are in the faith, whether our faith in Christ is the faith of someone who has recognized his own spiritual bankruptcy and has therefore taken refuge to Christ and his unsearchable riches. And Lord, we pray that thy children may be encouraged by all this. It is so painful when time and again we are confronted with our spiritual bankruptcy. The Lord, we, may, we pray that that may ever, ever again drive us out to Christ, to find our peace in Him, to find our salvation in Him alone, to make mention of His righteousness and of His righteousness only. And so bless Thy word. Go with us as we return home and gather with us again in this evening hour. We ask it in Jesus' name alone. Amen.